0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today an interesting story from Charlotte Young, one of our favorite narrators of history here at 1001 Classic Short Stories. Today's story is titled The Shepherd Girl of Nanterre, and the story deals largely with a group of people called the Gauls. As most of you know, slavery has existed almost since the beginning of man. The 4th century Roman historian Ammianus Marcellinus wrote that the Gauls were tall, light-skinned, light-haired, and light-eyed. He wrote, almost all Gauls are tall and fair-skinned, with reddish hair. Their savage eyes make them fearful objects. They are eager to quarrel and excessively truculent. When in the course of a dispute any of them calls in his wife, a creature with gleaming eyes much stronger than her husband, they are more than a match for a whole group of foreigners, especially when the woman, with swollen neck and gnashing teeth, "'swings her great white arms and begins to deliver a rain of punches mixed with kicks "'like missiles launched by the twisted strings of a catapult. "'The Gauls were actually Celtic peoples of continental Europe during the Iron Age "'and the Roman period, roughly from 5th century B.C. to 5th century A.D. "'The area they originally inhabited was known as Gaul. "'Their Gaulish language forms the main branch of the continental Celtic languages.' By the 4th century BC, they had expanded over much of what is now France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, southern Germany, Austria, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia by virtue of controlling the trade routes along the river systems of the Rhone, the Seine, the Rhine, and the Danube. They also expanded into northern Italy, the Balkans, Transylvania, and Galatia. They never united under a single ruler, but they were capable of uniting their forces for large scale military operations. The rise of Rome, gradually saw the end and enslavement of the Gauls. The Shepherd Girl of Nanterre by Charlotte M. Young catches a moment from that time. We begin in A.D. 438. Four hundred years of the Roman dominion had entirely tamed the once wild and independent Gauls. Everywhere, except in the moorlands of Brittany, they had become as much like Romans themselves as they could accomplish. They had Latin names, spoke the Latin tongue, All their personages of higher rank were enrolled as Roman citizens. Their chief cities were colonies where the laws were administered by magistrates in the Roman fashion, and the houses, dress, and amusements were the same as those of Italy. The greater part of the towns had been converted to Christianity, though some paganism still lurked in the more remote villages and mountainous districts. It was upon these civilized Gauls that the terrible attacks came from the wild nations who poured out of the center and east of Europe. The Franks came over the Rhine, and its dependent rivers, and made furious attacks upon the peaceful plains, where the Gauls had long lived in security, and reports were everywhere heard of villages harried by wild horsemen, with short double-headed battle-axes, and horrible short pike, covered with iron, and with several large hooks, like a gigantic artificial minnow, and like it fastened to a long rope, so that the prey which it had grappled might be pulled up to the owner. Walled cities usually stopped them, But every farm or villa outside was stripped of its valuables, set on fire, the cattle driven off, and the more healthy inhabitants seized for slaves. It was during this state of things that a girl was born to a wealthy peasant at the village now called Nanterre, about two miles from Lutetia, which was already a prosperous city, though not as yet so entirely the capital as it was destined to become under the name of Paris. She was christened by an old Gaelic name, probably Gwen Frui, or White Stream in Latin, Genevisa, but she is best known by the late French form of Genevieve. When she was about seven years old, two celebrated bishops passed through the village, Germanus of Auxerre and Lupus of Troyes, who had been invited to Britain to dispute the false doctrine of Pelagius. All the inhabitants flocked into the church to see them, pray with them, and receive their blessing, and here the sweet childish devotion of Genevieve so struck Germanus that he called her to him, talked to her, made her sit beside him at the feast, gave her a special blessing, and presented her with a copper medal with a cross engraven upon it. From that time the little maiden always deemed herself especially consecrated to the service of heaven, but she still remained at home, daily keeping her father's sheep and spinning their wool as she sat under the trees watching them, but always with a heart full of prayer. After this St. Germanus proceeded to Britain, and there encouraged his converts to meet the heathen Picts at Maes Garmon, "'in Flintshire, where the exulting shout "'of the white-robed catechumens turned to flight "'the wild, superstitious savages of the north, "'and the hallelujah victory was gained "'without a drop of bloodshed. "'He never lost sight of Genevieve, "'the little maid whom he had so early distinguished "'for her piety. "'After she lost her parents, "'she went to live with her godmother, "'and continued the same simple habits, "'leading a life of sincere devotion "'and strict self-denial, constant prayer.' and much charity to her poorer neighbors. In the year 451, the whole of Gaul was in the most dreadful state of terror at the advance of Attila, the savage chief of the Huns, who came from the banks of the Danube with a host of savages of hideous features, scarred and disfigured to render them more frightful. The old enemies, the Goths and the Franks, seemed like friends compared with these formidable beings whose cruelties were said to be intolerable, and of whom every exaggerated story was told that could add to the horrors of the miserable people who lay in their path. Tidings came that this scourge of God, as Attila called himself, had passed the Rhine, destroyed Tongres and Metz, and was in full march for Paris. The whole country was in the utmost terror. Everyone seized their most valuable possessions, and would have fled, but Genevieve placed herself on the only bridge across the Seine, and argued with them. "'assuring them in a strain that was afterwards thought of as prophetic, "'that, if they would pray, repent, and defend, "'instead of abandoning their homes, God would protect them. "'They were at first almost ready to stone her "'for thus withstanding their panic. "'But just then a priest arrived from Auxerre "'with a present for Genevieve from St. Germanus, "'and they were thus reminded of the high estimation in which he held her. "'They became ashamed of their violence,' and she held them back to pray and to arm themselves. In a few days they heard that Attila had paused to besiege Orléans, and that Asius, the Roman general, hurrying from Italy, had united his troops with those of the Goths and the Franks, and given Attila so terrible a defeat at Chalons that the Huns were fairly driven out of Gaul. And here it must be mentioned that when the next year, 452, Attila with his murderous host came down into Italy, and after horrible devastation of all the northern provinces, came to the gates of Rome. No one dared to meet him but one venerable bishop, Leo, the Pope, who, when his flock were in transports of despair, went forth only accompanied by one magistrate to meet the invader, and endeavored to turn his wrath aside. The savage Huns were struck with awe by the fearless majesty of the unarmed old man. They conducted him safely to Attila, who listened to him with respect, and promised not to lead his people into Rome, provided a tribute should be paid to him. He then retreated, and to the joy of all Europe died on his way back to his native dominions. But with the Huns the danger and suffering of Europe did not end. The happy state described in the prophets as dwelling safely, with none to make them afraid, was utterly unknown in Europe throughout the long breakup of the Roman Empire, and in a few more years the Franks were overrunning the banks of the Seine, and actually venturing to lay siege to the Roman walls of Paris itself. The fortifications were strong enough, but hunger began to do the work of the besiegers, and the garrison, unwarlike and untrained, began to despair. But Genevieve's courage and trust never failed, and finding no warriors willing to run the risk of going beyond the walls to obtain food for the women and children who were perishing around them. This brave shepherdess embarked alone in a little boat, and, guiding it down the stream, landed beyond the Frankish camp, and repairing to the different Gallic cities, she implored them to send succor to the famished brethren. She obtained complete success. Probably the Franks had no means of obstructing the passage of the river, so that a convoy of boats could easily penetrate into the town, and at any rate they looked upon Genevieve as something sacred and inspired, whom they durst not touch, probably as one of the battle maids in whom their own myths sought them to believe. One account indeed says that, instead of going alone to obtain help, Genevieve placed herself at the head of a forage party and that the mere sight of her inspired bearing caused them to be allowed to enter and return in safety. But the boat version seems the more probable, since a single boat on a broad river would more easily elude the enemy than a troop of Gauls passing through their army. But a city where all the valour resided in one woman could not long hold out, and in another inroad, when Genevieve was absent, Paris was actually seized by the Franks. Their leader, Hilperic, was absolutely afraid of what the mysteriously brave maiden might do to him, and commanded the gates of the city to be carefully guarded lest she enter. But Genevieve learnt that some of the chief citizens were imprisoned, and that Hilperic intended their death, and nothing could withhold her from making an effort in their behalf. The Franks had made up their minds to settle, and not to destroy. They were not burning and slaying indiscriminately, but while disposing the Romans, as they called the Gauls, for their cowardice, they were in awe of the superior civilization and their knowledge of arts. The country people had free access to the city, and Genevieve in her homely gown and veil passed by Hilperic's guards without being suspected of being more than an ordinary Gaulish village maid, and thus she fearlessly made her way, even to the old Roman halls, where the long-haired Hilperic was holding his wild carousal. Would that we knew more of that interview, one of the most striking that ever took place! we can only picture to ourselves the Roman tessellated pavement bestrewn with wine, bones, and fragments of the barbarous revelry. There were untamed franks, their sunburnt hair tied up in a knot at the top of their heads, and falling down like a horse's tail, their faces close-shaven, except two mustaches, and dressed in tight leather garments, with swords at their wide belts. Some slept, some feasted, some greased their long locks, Some shouted out their favorite war songs around the table which was covered with the spoils of churches, and at their head sat the wild, long haired chieftain, who was a few years later driven away by his own followers for his excesses. The whole scene was all that was abhorrent to a pure, devout, and faithful nature, most full of terror to a woman. Yet there, in her strength, stood the peasant maiden, her heart full of trust and pity, her looks full of the power that is given by fearlessness of them that can kill the body. What she said, we do not know. We only know that the barbarous Hilperic was overawed. He trembled before the expostulations of the brave woman, and granted all she asked, the safety of his prisoners, and mercy to the terrified inhabitants. No wonder that the people of Paris have ever since looked back to Genevieve as their protectress, and that in after ages she has grown to be the patron saint of the city. She lived to see the son of Hilperic, Clodway, or as he was more commonly called, Clovis, marry a Christian wife, Clotilda, and after a time become a Christian. She saw the foundation of the Cathedral of Notre Dame and of the two famous churches of St. Denis and St. Martin of Tours and gave her full share to the first efforts for bringing the rude and bloodthirsty conquerors to some knowledge of Christian faith, mercy, and purity. After a life of constant prayer and charity, she died three months after King Clovis in the year 512, in her 89th year. Our footnote. Perhaps the exploits of the Maid of Orléans were the most like those of Genevieve, but they are not here added to our collection of golden deeds because the Maid's belief that she was directly inspired removes them from the ordinary class. Alas, the English did not treat her as Hilperic treated Genevieve. We'll return to our second story right after these sponsor messages. Welcome to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. One of my favorite writers is Charlotte Mary Young, an English writer who inspired many others, kept to her principles, and could write short stories based upon actual historic events better than most. In my historical research for one of my other shows, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, I occasionally come across references to her stories, which are well told and incredibly well researched, we have one of her stories here in our archives, a story called The Last Fight in the Colosseum," and it's excellent. Today's story, called Fort St. Elmo, is the story of the last stand of the Christian Knights on the island of Malta against the Muslim hordes of Suleiman in 1565. For a longer account of this incredible siege, check our archives at 1001 Heroes podcast for the origin of the Maltese Cross and the Battle of Malta. I will also leave a link to that episode here in the show notes. Miss Young offers the perfect compliment to that story, or mine adds a compliment to hers, whichever way you want to look at it. But at any rate, this is an incredible historical piece you will never forget. And now, Fort St. Elmo by Charlotte M. Young. 1565 the White Cross of the Order of St. John waved on the Towers of Rhodes for 255 years. In 1552, after a desperate resistance, the Turks, under their great sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, succeeded in driving the Knights Hospitallers from their beautiful home, and they were again cast upon the world. They were resolved, however, to continue their old work of protecting the Mediterranean travelers, and thankfully accepted, as a gift from the Emperor Charles V, the little inlet of Malta as their new station. It was a great contrast to their former home, being little more than mere rock rising steeply out of the sea, white, glaring, and with very shallow earth, unfit to bear corn, though it produced plenty of oranges, figs, and melons, with little water and no wood. The buildings wretched, and for the most part uninhabited, and the few people a miserable mongrel set part Arab, part Greek, part Sicilian, and constantly kept down by the descents of the Moorish pirates, who used to land in the unprotected bays and carry off all the wretched beings they could catch to sell for slaves. It was a miserable exchange from fertile roads, which was nearly five times larger than this barren rock, but the knights only wanted a hospital, a fortress, and a harbor, and this last they found in the deeply indented northern shore while they made the first two. Only a few years had passed before the dreary Sita Notabile had become in truth a notable city, full of fine castle-like houses, infirmaries, and noble churches, and fenced in with mighty wall and battlements. Country houses were perched upon the rocks, the harbors were fortified and filled with vessels of war, and deep vaults were hollowed out in the rock in which corn was stored, sufficient to supply the inhabitants for many months. Everywhere that there was need was seen the red flag with the eight-pointed cross. If there was an earthquake on the shores of Italy or Sicily, there were the ships of St. John, bringing succor to the crushed and ruined townspeople. In every battle with Turk or Moor, the knights were among the foremost, and as ever before, their galleys were the aid of the peaceful merchant and the terror of the corsair. Indeed, they were nearer Tunis, Tripoli, and Algiers, the great nests of these Moorish pirates and were better able to threaten them and thwart their cruel descents than when so much further eastward, and the Mohammedan power found them quite as obnoxious in Malta as in Rhodes. Suleiman the Magnificent resolved in his old age to sweep these obstinate Christians from the seas, and only twelve years after the siege of Rhodes, prepared an enormous armament which he united with those of the Barbary pirates and placed under the command of Mustafa and Piali, his two bravest pashas and Dragout, a terrible Algerine corsair, who had already made an attempt upon the island, but had been repulsed by the good English knight, Sir Nicholas Upton. Without the advice of this pirate, the sultan desired that nothing should be undertaken. The grand master who had to meet this tremendous danger was Jean Parisot de la Valette, a brave and resolute man, as noted for his piety and tenderness to the sick in the infirmaries, as for his unflinching courage. When he learnt the intentions of the sultan, he began by collecting a chapter of his order, and, after laying his tidings before them, said, A formidable army and a cloud of barbarians are about to burst on this isle. Brethren, they are the enemies of Jesus Christ. The question is the defense of the faith and whether the gospel shall yield to the Koran. God demands from us the life that we have already devoted to him by our profession. Happy they who, in so good a cause shall first consummate their sacrifice. But that we may be worthy, my brethren, let us hasten to the altar, there to renew our vows, and may to each one of us be imparted by the very blood of the Savior of mankind and by faithful participation in his sacraments that generous contempt of death that can alone render us invincible. With these words he led the way to the church, and there was not an individual knight who did not on that day confess and receive the Holy Communion, after which they were as new men. All disputes, all trivialities and follies were laid aside, and the whole community awaited the siege like persons under a solemn dedication. The chief harbor of Malta is a deep bay, turned towards the north, and divided into two lesser bays by a large tongue of rock, on the point of which stood a strong castle called Fort St. Elmo. The gulf to the westward has a little island in it, and both gulf and islet are called Marza Muscat. The gulf to the east, called the Grand Port, was again divided by three fingers of rock projecting from the mainland at right angles to the tongue that bore Fort St. Elmo. Each finger was armed with a strong talon, the castle of La Sangle to the east, the castle of St. Angelo in the middle, and Fort Ricasoli to the west. Between St. Angelo and La Sangle, "'was the harbor where all the ships of war were shut up at night by an immense chain, "'and behind was Il Borgio, the chief fortification in the island. "'Cita Notabile and Gozo were inland, "'and their fate would depend on that of the defenses of the harbor. "'To defend all this, the Grand Master could only number 700 knights and 8,500 soldiers. "'He sent to summon home all those of the order "'who were dispersed in the different commanderies in France.' Spain and Germany, and entreated aid from the Spanish king, Philip II, who wished to be considered as the prime champion of Roman Catholic Christendom, and who alone had the power of assisting him. The Duke of Alva, viceroy for Philip in Sicily, made answer that he would endeavor to relieve the order if they could hold out Fort St. Elmo till the fleet could be got together, but that if this castle were once lost, it would be impossible to bring them aid, and they must be left to their fate. The Grand Master divided the various posts to the knights according to their countries. The Spaniards under the commander de Geras, bailiff of Negropont, had the castle of St. Elmo. The French had port de la Sangle. The Germans and the few English knights whom the Reformation had left were charged with the defense of the port of the Borgo, which served as headquarters, and the commander Copier, with a body of troops, was to remain outside the town and watch and harass the enemy. On the 18th of May, 1565, the Turkish fleet came in sight. It consisted of 159 ships rowed by Christian slaves between the decks and carrying 30,000 Janissaries and Spahis, the terrible warriors to whom the Turks owed most of their victories. And after them came spreading for miles over the blue waters a multitude of ships of burthen bringing the horses of the Spahis. And such heavy battering cannon as rendered the dangers of a siege infinitely greater than in former days. These Janissaries were a strange, distorted resemblance of the knights themselves, for they were bound in a strict brotherhood of arms, and were not married so as to care for nothing but each other, the Sultan, and the honor of their troop. They were not dull, apathetic Turks, but chiefly natives of Circassia and Georgia, the land where the human race is most beautiful and nobly formed. They were stolen from their homes, or too often sold by their parents when too young to remember their Christian baptism, and were bred up as Mohammedans, with no home but their corps, no kindred but their fellow soldiers. Their title, given by the sultan who first enrolled them, meant new soldiers. Their ensign was a camp kettle, as that of their pashas was one, two, or three horses' tails, in honor of the old Kurdish chief, the founder of the Turkish Empire but there was no homeliness in their appointments. Their weapons, scimitars, pistols, and carabines were crusted with gold and jewels. Their headdress, though made in imitation of a sleeve, was gorgeous, and their garments were of the richest wool and silk, dyed with the deep, exquisite colors of the East. Terrible warriors were they, and almost equally dreaded were the Spahis, light horsemen from Albania and the other Greek and Bulgarian provinces who had entered the Turkish service and were great plunderers, swift and cruel, glittering both man and horse with the jewels they had gained in their forays. These were chiefly troops for the land attack, and they were set on shore at Port St. Thomas, where the commanders, Mustafa and Piali held a council to decide where they should first attack. Piali wished to wait for Dragut, who was daily expected, but Mustafa was afraid of losing time and of being caught by the Spanish fleet and insisted on at once laying siege to Fort St. Elmo, which was, he thought, so small that it could not hold out more than five or six days. Indeed, it could not hold above three hundred men, but these were some of the bravest of the knights, and as it was only attacked on the land side, they were able to put off boats at night and communicate with the Grand Master and their brethren in the Borgo the Turks set up their batteries and fired their enormous cannon shot upon the fortifications. One of their terrible pieces of ordnance carried stone balls of 160 pounds each, and no wonder that stone and mortar gave way before it, and that a breach was opened in a few days' time. That night, when, as usual, boatloads of wounded men were transported across to the Borgio, the bailiff of Negropont sent the Knight Lacerda to the Grand Master to give an account of the state of things and ask for help. Lacerda spoke strongly, and before a great number of knights declared that there was no chance of so weak a place holding out for more than a week. What has been lost, said the Grand Master, since you cry out for help? Sir, replied Lacerda, the castle may be regarded as a patient in extremity and devoid of strength, who can only be sustained by continual remedies and constant succor. "'I will be doctor myself,' replied the Grand Master, "'and will bring others with me who, "'if they cannot cure you of fear, "'will at least be brave enough to prevent the infidels "'from seizing the fort.' "'The fact was, as he well knew, "'that the little fort could not hold out long, "'and he grieved over the fate of his knights. "'But time was everything, "'and the fate of the whole isle "'depended upon the White Cross "'being still on that point of land "'when the tardy Sicilian fleet should set sail.' He was one who would ask no one to run into perils that he would not share himself, and he was bent on throwing himself into St. Elmo, and being rather buried under the ruins than to leave the Mussulmans free a moment sooner than could be helped to attack the Borgio and Castle of St. Angelo. But the whole chapter of knights entreated him to abstain, and so many volunteered for this desperate service that the only difficulty was to choose among them. Indeed, Lacerda had done the garrison injustice, "'No one's heart was failing but his own, "'and the next day there was a respite "'for a cannon shot from St. Angelo "'falling into the enemy's camp "'shattered a stone, "'a splinter of which struck down "'the Piali Pasha. "'He was thought dead, "'and the camp and fleet were in confusion, "'which enabled the Grand Master "'to send off his nephew, "'the Chevalier de la Valette Mornuson, "'to Messina, "'to entreat the viceroy of Sicily "'to hasten to their relief.' TO GIVE HIM A CHART OF THE ENTRANCE OF THE HARBOR, AND A LIST OF SIGNALS, AND TO DESIRE IN ESPECIAL THAT THE TWO SHIPS BELONGING TO THE ORDER, AND FILLED WITH THE KNIGHTS WHO HAD HURRIED FROM DISTANT LANDS TOO LATE FOR THE BEGINNING OF THE siege, MIGHT COME TO HIM AT ONCE. TO THIS THE viceroy RETURNED A PROMISE THAT AT LATEST THE FLEET SHOULD SAIL ON THE 15TH OF JUNE, ADDING AN EXHORTATION TO HIM AT ALL SACRIFICES TO MAINTAIN ST. ELMO this reply the Grand Master transmitted to the garrison, and it nerved them to fight even with more patience and self-sacrifice. A desperate sally was led by the Chevalier de Medran, who fought his way into the trenches where the Turkish cannon were planted, and at first drove all before him. But the Janissaries rallied and forced back the Christians out of the trenches. Unfortunately, there was a high wind which drove the smoke of the artillery down on the counterscarp, the slope of the masonry facing the rampart, and while it was thus hidden from the Christians, the Turks succeeded in effecting a lodgment there, fortifying themselves with trees and sacks of earth and wool. When the smoke cleared off, the knights were dismayed to see the horsetail ensigns of the Janissaries so near them and cannon already prepared to batter the ravelin, or outwork, protecting the gateway. La proposed to blow this fortification up and abandon it, but no other knight would hear of deserting an inch of wall while it could yet be held. But again the sea was specked with white sails from the southeast. Six galleys came from Egypt bearing 900 troops, Mameluke horsemen, troops recruited much like the Janissaries, and quite as formidable. These ships were commanded by Uluciali, an Italian who had denied his faith and become a Mohammedan, and was thus regarded with a special horror by the chivalry of Malta and the swarm thickened for a few days more, like white-winged and beautiful but venomous insects hovering round their prey. The graceful Moorish galleys and galleots came up from the south, bearing six hundred dark-visaged, white-turbaned, lithe-limbed Moors from Tripoli, under Dragood himself. The thunders of all the guns roaring forth their salute of honor told the garrison that the most formidable enemy of all had arrived and now their little white rock was closed in on every side with nothing but its own firmness to be its aid. Dragoot did not approve of having begun with attacking Fort St. Elmo. He thought that the inland town should have been first taken, and Mustafa offered to discontinue the attack. But this, the corsair said, could not now be done with honor, and under him the attack went on more furiously than ever. He planted a battery of four guns on the point guarding the entrance of Marza Muscat, the other gulf, and the spot has ever since been called Dragooch Point. Strange to say, the soldiers in the ravelin fell asleep, and thus enabled the enemy to scramble up by climbing upon one another's shoulders and entering the place. As soon as the alarm was given, the bailiff of Negropont, with a number of knights, rushed into the ravelin and fought with the utmost desperation, but all in vain. They never succeeded in dislodging the Turks, and had almost been followed by them into the fort itself. Only the utmost courage turned back the enemy at last and it was believed with a loss of 3,000 knights. The order had 20 knights and a 100 soldiers killed with many more wounded. One knight named Abel de Brediers, who was shot through the body, refused to be assisted by his brethren, saying, Reckon me no more among the living. You will be doing better by defending our brothers. He dragged himself away and was found dead before the altar in the castle chapel. The other wounded were brought back to the Borgo in boats at night, and Lacerda availed himself of a slight scratch to come with them and remain, though the bailiff of Negropont, a very old man, and with a really severe wound, returned as soon as it had been dressed, together with the reinforcement sent to supply the place of those who had been slain. The Grand Master, on finding how small had been Lacerda's hurt, put him in prison for several days but he was afterwards released and met his death bravely on the ramparts of the Borgio. The 15th of June was passed. Nothing would make the Sicilian Viceroy move, nor even let the warships of the Order sail with their own knights, and the little fort that had been supposed unable to hold out a week had done so for a full month and resisted every attack of the enemy. At last, Dragut, though severely wounded while reconnoitering, "'set up a battery on the hill of Calcera "'so as to command the strait "'and hinder the secours from being sent across to the fort. "'The wounded were laid down in the chapel and the vaults, "'and well it was for them that each knight of the order "'could be a surgeon and a nurse. "'One good swimmer crossed under cover of darkness "'with their last messages, "'and La Valette prepared five armed boats for their relief, "'but the enemy had fifteen already in the bay.' and communication was entirely cut off. It was the night before the 23rd of June when these brave men knew their time was come. All night they prayed, and prepared themselves to die by giving one another the last rites of the church, and at daylight each repaired to his post those who could not walk being carried in chairs and sat ghastly figures, sword in hand, on the brink of the breach, and ready for their last fight, by the middle of the day, every Christian knight in St. Elmo had died upon his post, and the little heap of ruins was in the hands of the enemy. Dragoot was dying of his wound, but just lived to hear that the place was won. When it had cost the sultan eight thousand men, well might Mustafa say, if the son has cost us so much, what will the father cost us? It would be too long to tell the glorious story of the three months further siege of the borgo The patience and resolution of the knights was unshaken, though daily there were tremendous battles, and week after week passed by without the tardy relief from Spain. It is believed that Philip II thought that the Turks would exhaust themselves against the order, and forbade his viceroy to hazard his fleet, but at last he was shamed into permitting the armament to be fitted out. Two hundred knights of St. John were waiting at Messina, in despair at being unable to reach their brethren in their deadly strait and constantly haunting the viceroy's palace, till he grew impatient, and declared that they did not treat him respectfully enough, nor call him excellency. Signor, said one of them, if you will only bring us time to save the order, I will call you anything you please, excellency, highness, or majesty. At last, on the 1st of September, the fleet set sail, but it hovered cautiously about on the farther side of the island, and only landed 6,000 men, and then returned to Sicily. However, the tidings of its approach had spread such a panic among the Turkish soldiers, who were worn out and exhausted by their exertions, that they hastily raised the siege, abandoned their heavy artillery, and, removing their garrison from Fort St. Elmo, reembarked in haste and confusion. No sooner, however, was the Pasha in his ship than he became ashamed of his precipitation more especially when he learnt that the relief that had put 16,000 men to flight consisted of only 6,000 men. And he resolved to land and give battle, but his troops were angry and unwilling, and were actually driven out of their ships by blows. In the meantime, the Grand Master had again placed a garrison in St. Elmo, which the Turks had repaired and restored, and once more the cross of St. John waved on the end of its tongue of land to greet the Spanish allies a battle was fought with the newly arrived troops in which the Turks were defeated. They again took to their ships, and the viceroy of Sicily, from Syracuse, beheld their fleet in full sail for the east. Meantime, the gates of the Borgo were thrown open to receive the brethren and friends who had been so long held back from coming to the relief of the home of the order. Four months' siege by the heaviest artillery in Europe had shattered the walls and destroyed the streets, till... To the eyes of the newcomers, the town looked like a place taken by assault and sacked by the enemy, and of the whole garrison, knights, soldiers, and sailors together, only six hundred were left able to bear arms, and they, for the most part, covered with wounds. The Grand Master and his surviving knights could hardly be recognized, so pale and altered were they by wounds and excessive fatigue, their hair, beards, dress, and armor showing that for four full months they had hardly undressed or lain down unarmed. The newcomers could not restrain their tears, but altogether proceeded to the church to return thanks for the conclusion of their perils and afflictions. Rejoicings extended all over Europe, above all in Italy, Spain, and southern France, where the Order of St. John was the sole protection against the descents of the Barbary Corsairs. The Pope sent La Valette a cardinal's hat, but he would not accept it as unsuited to his office. Philip II presented him with a jeweled sword and dagger. Some thousand unadorned swords a few months sooner would have been a better testimony to his constancy and that of the brave men whose lives Spain had wasted by her cruel delays. The Borgia was thenceforth called Sita Vitoriosa, but La Valette decided on building the chief town of the isle on the peninsula of Fort St. Elmo, and in this work, he spent his latter days till he was killed by a sunstroke while superintending the new works of the city, which is deservedly known by his name as Valletta. The Order of St. John lost much of its character and was finally swept from Malta in the general confusion of the Revolutionary Wars. The British crosses now float in the harbor of Malta, but the steep white rocks must ever bear the memory of the self-devoted endurance of the beleaguered knights and, foremost of all, of those who perished in St. Elmo in order that the signal banner might to the very last summon the tardy viceroy to their aid. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. If you enjoyed this story, please send us a review at Apple iTunes Podcast app or at Stitcher. Here are some recent reviews. Thank you for existing. This one sent by Census Princess. Rating 5 stars. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your podcast. In my previous job with the government, I was able to work and listen to books on play always. I probably listened to 300 classics, mostly ones that I never seemed to find time to read. But now, that glorious time is over. I work in another department where any type of device is frowned upon. But all is not lost. I have found you. I'm able to secretly listen for short periods of time, which is perfect for one of your wonderfully read short stories. So thank you for making my work life a little more bearable. I look forward to hearing many more beautifully read stories. And this one, Great Stories, by D. Sue 13. Okay, this may be a premature review, since I've only listened to two stories so far. But I enjoyed both. I was apprehensive at first listening with my first episode, but I gave another one a shot, and now I'm hooked. I'm going through familiar titles first and then tackling ones I've never heard of. Love that I found this. Great for me while I tend to housework. And Love by Aunt Aioli. These are so good and I'm telling everyone about these. Keep them coming. Thank you so much, you three, for taking the time to send us reviews at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. It's appreciated more than you know. And it sounds like a great relationship. I love finding and telling these stories. And you guys love listening to them. There's no better combination in the world. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.